You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Denim Audio Network. Well, hello and welcome, my friends, to The Way Home Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining me today. We have a a really great show in store for you. I'm excited to talk about the topic of civility and democracy. What does it look like to live as faithful Christian citizens in 2023 in America? But before we get to that, I'd like to tell you a little bit about two things you might be interested in. One is my new book called Agents of Grace. And uh, this book is really written from the heart. I talk about my own journey to faith and growing up in the church and times that uh, in my ministry that I've been hurt and how the Lord's helped me to overcome that through forgiveness and be at peace with those things. Talk about love. What does it look like, look like for us to love our brothers and sisters as, as the Lord has commanded us? What does unity mean? Does it mean just us sort of uh, standing around a campfire holding hands, singing Kumbaya and some weird sort of ritual? Or does unity have much deeper meaning? Uh, what does it look like to to work with and love in the body of Christ, people who are vastly different from us? And what are issues that we really should press in on and go to the mat for? And what are some things that we might feel deeply about, but should be open-handed with? So I think you'll want to get this book. It's available wherever books are sold. You can go to my website and see the links there. Uh, it's got a forward by J.D. Greer. It's been endorsed by Dr. David Dockery and several other folks. Uh, so I think you'll want to get your hands on this for your own personal reading, maybe for your small group, for your church staff to go through. Uh, we'd love to have you do that. The second thing is uh, I have a writing cohort that is um, hosted by my friend Chad Poe and his ministry, Throughline Cohorts. And I have probably a couple times a week folks reach out to me and say, man, I'd love to be a writer like you are. How do I get in, into the business? How do I start get into publishing? What does it look like for me to start writing regularly for different outlets? Or maybe you have a book idea. Uh, and I'd love to help you with that, coach you with that. We did this last semester and we had a great time with a handful of folks who were really across the spectrum. Some who just want to start writing kind of regularly, others who had book ideas, other people want to write in other formats. And so we're able to kind of walk through and coach them along the way with those things. So if you're interested, we'll have links in the show notes. We'll have links on my website, Throughline Cohorts with Chad Poe. And this is the writing cohort with me, uh, Dan Darling. Okay. Our next guest is Alexandra Hudson. I met Alexandra this summer when I was at a convention called Braver Angels, where people were coming together to say, how can we make democracy work well with people who deeply disagree with each other? How can we participate in the American experiment and work for change, but also reach across and work with the other side without giving up our core uh, values? I think it was a really good uh, time. And uh, Alexandra uh, is a writer. She's written for National Review. She's written for many uh, places, New York Times and others. Uh, she worked in the uh, Department of Education for some season. She writes about that in her book. She's a really great voice. She has a new book out called The Soul of Civility, and it's a really deep dive into what we mean by this word civility. Is it just being nice? Is it just being kind? 
what does it mean in terms of um, civic engagement and democracy as a citizen? And she really draws from a lot of voices, uh, philosophers and and great literature from the past and America, our own American history. And so she uh, is very interesting and has a lot of really good things to say. Uh, I, I loved having this conversation with her. So let's join my conversation with Alexandra Hudson. Uh, Alexandra Hudson, and uh, most people call you Lexi, right? That's right. So I'll, I'll do that. Yeah, I mean, my official pen, you know, my name is Daniel, but most people call me Dan, and I'm fine with that. I like that. Danny um, to your really close friends. So I call Danny, though. <laughs> I, I can't stand Danny. It's like, I didn't give you permission to call me Danny, people. Why are we, why are we doing that? So I'm excited to have you on. I, we, we spent some time together at the Braver Angels convention this year this summer at in Gettysburg, which is really great. And I've followed your work for a long time. We have some mutual friends, but really, really love what you do. You have you have a new book out called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. It's a great book. And it's really something I've thought about and tried to be active on in the last how many years. So so tell me a little bit, first of all, why you know you've worked in government, you've been in a lot of conservative spaces, you know, as a conservative do, doing public policy and speech writing and, and all sort of things like that. And uh, tell me a little bit of your story of, of why you wanted to write this book at this time, uh, other than the fact that, you know, we, we do have a, a real need for civility in this moment. Uh, it's, it's very much a, a felt need right now in America. But Tell me how you sort of came to this. Thanks, Dan. Great to be with you. Appreciate you having me here. So I've, yes, this is probably the most in, important question of our day. This question of how to do life together across difference. And yet my interest in this goes back a very long time. It's a question I've been thinking about my entire life. Uh, my mother is something of an expert on all things etiquette and manners. Her name is Judy, the manners lady. And as I, as mm. I wrote this book and researched for it, I discovered Dan that there are no fewer, maybe more, <laughs> no fewer than four women named Judith who are experts on manners and have like a national profile teaching manners. One of whom is Judith Martin, the Washington Post columnist, AKA Miss Manners. So my mother is one mm. of these four, <laughs> four women named Judy who teaches That's manners. That's funny. And, uh, and of course, the one I'm most partial to since she is my mother. And so, you know, my mom raised me in this environment of being attentive and aware of social norms and following them. And she promised that, that manners would help us get along in life. And one thing she always said was that manners were an inward extension of our, uh, sorry, outward extension of our inward character. That's why they mattered. And more than just focusing on manners, though, my mom embodied, like she had the character of, of, of true civility uh, and just the, is the absolute most gracious, loving, kind, magnanimous human you'll ever meet. So she, but so again, she cared about the external, the manners, because they, in, in her mind, they, they were an expression of the internal, the, the true ethic of, of hospitality and service to others that she so well embodies. So I had this wonderful example in my mom and, and teacher and so I, I always was kind of skeptical of manners, though, despite being raised in this environment. I didn't like arbitrary rules of do's and don'ts. And I wanted to, I, I'm constitutionally allergic to authority. And, but I always, I always 
followed, you know, generally the rules and they served me well in life and in work and in school until I found myself at the United States Department of Education, 2017 to 2018, I served there. And when I was in government, I found myself confronted with two extremes that at first glance seemed to be polar opposites. On one hand, uh, and when I was in government, my experience in politics, there were these aggressive, hostile actors that you knew where they stood. They were willing to stand over, step on and, and, you know, sharp elbows, like get, get, get anyone out of their way who was a barrier to them uh, achieving their ends and gaining proximity to power and whatever their goals were. So you, you know, you knew those actors and you knew how to operate within them <laughs> or how to avoid them and not get in their way. And then on the other hand, there, there was this uh, other contingent and they were the more polished, smooth, and in often in many cases, the more savvy, uh, experienced politicos. And they were the ones that um, at first I was like, okay, these are my people. I can work with them. Like they were polished and they were well-mannered and they were pleasant to talk to. But the moment that you no longer serve their purposes, they would stab you in the back. And, 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 and still achieve their end. And with this second mm-hmm. contingent, again, I was really puzzled by them. And they kind of threw me for a loop because in the back of my head, I heard my mother's words that manners were an outward extension of your inward character. And that's why they mattered. And yet here I was surrounded by people who were very well-mannered. They knew the rules of politeness and etiquette, and they knew how the social pleasantries and the mores. And yet they were weapons they were tools that they used to disarm and to manipulate and to achieve their ends uh, and to be ruthless and cruel to those that they wanted to use to get ahead in whatever and whatever the, the context was and so at first I thought these were two polar opposites these two extremes and yet upon reflection uh, again so I lived in this very hostile environment for a year and then left very broken and very disillusioned by public life and just what I knew to be true and, and myself. And, and thought deeply and reflected deeply about these, these questions. And what I came to realize after deep reflection was that these weren't opposites. They were actually two sides of the same coin. That both the overtly aggressive and hostile people that were willing to, you know, sharp elbows, step on anyone in their way, and the obsequious and polite, you know, Machiavellians, they both instrumentalized others. They both saw other people as means to their ends, and they were willing to, to use them. To, to achieve their goals. And they didn't see people as beings with innate dignity and worth, created in God's image, and, and worthy of a bare minimum of respect in light of the Imago Dei, in light of our human dignity. And that is how I define civility, that civility is seeing others as beings, again, made in God's image, uh, and worthy of a bare minimum of respect because of our, our innate dignity and our shared moral worth. As, as, as members of the, 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 hu- the human community. And so that was, that was really helpful and, and clarifying for me to, to, to realize and appreciate that. And so I wrote this book trying to disambiguate civility from politeness. That, that's a really central argument to my book that I'm happy to, to talk about. But that was another thing I realized after reflection. Well, um, I, I, I want to camp out a little bit on that last part. And uh, first of all, your story is, is really you know, fascinating because I think, you know, a lot of people would think, man, it'd be such a dream thing to go work in the government and uh, work for a conservative administration if you're if you're conservative or uh, to work on education policy. But just how 
fraught with day-to-day stress and anxiety and rival factions and all that stuff uh, is really in some ways dispiriting because it's like to think that the things like that are going on in the the government, you know, instead of actually, you know, working for the people. But I want to talk a little bit about that, the difference between civility and kind of niceness or politeness, because I think you, you probably get this, Lexi, and I get this all the time, ever since I wrote about civility, people kind of roll their eyes with it. Okay. Yeah, whatever. That's great. But you don't understand the stakes we're in, or as people are fond of saying today, you don't know what time it is, which, which, which is like my least favorite thing. You know, if you're telling me you don't, you don't know what time it is, I'm like, I'm less inclined to listen. But the idea that the stakes are so high, we need to, we need to scrap civility and just like, you know, forget all that. I, I, I happen to disagree with that. I mean, I, I think of, first of all, from scripture, the apostles who are about to go to their deaths for preaching Christianity, preaching the gospel, nevertheless saying, you know, the fruits of the spirit should be evident in your life. And these virtues should be evident. And, you know, Peter saying, uh, have an answer for every person, but do it with, do it with gentleness and kindness. And I think of like Martin Luther King, right. Who was uh, marching for civil rights, protesting, talked a lot about civility, talked a lot about the dignity, even of the people he disagreed with. So separate for us a little bit. People think civility, they think, compromising, being squishy, and being nice. T- tell us why that's wrong. So this is this is what, what I came to appreciate that, you know, there, there are two camps in our public discourse today. There are these people who lament that we've come so far from this quote unquote golden age of gentility and comity and chivalry and civility. And that we used to all just be able to get along across difference 50 years ago. Like there are different, you know, stories that have different golden ages, but there's one contingent that laments that we've fallen so far from this perceived golden age. And that if only we could get back to that, those good old fashioned values of, you know, politeness and civility, that things would be better. And then there's another contingent that vehemently disagrees and says, no, civility and politeness, those are part of the problem. Those are tools of the, of the p- people in positions of power to silence people's, people who, who are weak and, and powerless in society. They are tools of perpetuating hierarchy and inequality and they are barriers mm. to justice and they are you know, weapons of white supremacy. Like you hear this language all the time. And so mm-hmm. they say, and, and to your point, no, the stakes are too high for politeness and civility and niceness. We cannot uh, abide that anymore. And all the gloves are off and everything on the table. Like, you know, nothing's off the table, basically. And my concern with both camps is that they conflate these two ideas, civility and politeness. They use them interchangeably. And I think it's essential to disambiguate them because uh, they, they are different. It's, it's actually not... You know, it's understandable why people use them interchangeably. Our dictionary defines them in one word in terms of the other, in terms of the other. And the very first English dictionary, Samuel Johnson's dictionary in 1755, defines civility in terms of politeness, politeness in terms of civility. And that's just confusing. And we have to disambiguate them. We have to understand that they are different. So I define civility as a, so, so I, I start with politeness. Politeness is a technique. It's manners, it's etiquette, it's the external stuff. 
Whereas that, that can be good or bad. It can be a tool. It can actually be an outward expression of one's inward character, or it can be a mask over an agenda and, 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 and a malicious self-aggrandizing heart or intention motive. And then there is civility. Civility is a disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as beings uh, who are worthy of respect. And that sometimes respecting others requires being impolite, breaking rules of politeness and decency and not decency, but, um, you know, breaking, breaking the rules of, of etiquette and telling someone a hard truth, telling someone that you think that they're wrong or, or engaging in a robust debate with someone, that that's actually a form of respecting them and not papering over difference, not polishing over difference and pretending difference doesn't exist, but grappling with the difference head on. And I think you'll appreciate this, Dan, because you're a student of history like I am. The etymology of these two words supports that distinction. The Latin root of politeness is polier, which means to smooth or polish. And that's what politeness does. It's also a good mnemonic, a good kind of, you know, memory device that like politeness focuses on the external. It smooths over, polishes over difference. Whereas civility comes from the Latin word uh, root for, for city, citizenship. And so it, kivitas is the root of, of civility. And that is what civility is, is the disposition and the habits and the mores of citizenship in a city, in, in, in this joint partnership of living well with others that is a, a community and a democracy. And again, sometimes, and especially in a democracy, living well with others requires having difficult conversations. We can't polish over and can't pretend these differences don't exist. Not only does that actually disrespect people, but we're never going to improve and progress and grow as people and as a society if we're not telling hard truths and having important conversations. And so with this distinction between civility and politeness, I, I also reclaim the, the, the civil protest and civil disobedience under the umbrella mm. of what true civility is. And Dr. King is a recurring protagonist in, in, um, in my book because he, you know, his vision of standing up to someone, a sit-in or a protest how that is an expression of love and respect, like his process of purification, part of his training before he allowed people to engage in his civil disobedience was to love people like to actually feel a sense of profound mm -hmm. love and an appreciation of their personhood before they protested them, that it wasn't out of anger or spite or to teach them a lesson. It was a profound respect and love married together that caused them. And that was the motivation and the baseline for them to take these actions that confronted them with the ugliness of what they were supporting implicitly or explicitly in the form of uh, segregation and racism in our country. So I think this uh, distinction between civility and politeness is essential to help us figure out what do we want more of and less of in society? What's actually, what are the tools and mores that are actually going to help us flourish, recover a sense of the high promise that comes with life together. It is not good for man to be alone. Uh, you know, mm. God, God told us in the Hebrew Bible, uh, which is why he created, you know, woman for man, that we as Christians, we are uh, profoundly social. It's part of what it means to be human. And yet we're mm. fallen. We're selfish. And, and, and those two aspects of who we are, of our personhood, will always be in tension. And that is why civilization, community, friendship is always fragile and why, why the habits of, of civility help sustain friendship, community, and civilization itself. We'll be right back with our guests, but right now I'd like you to listen to a sample chapter of my book, Agents of Grace. I'm writing to say that God is still at work in the world. 
and to say that Christian love and spiritual unity are still worth pursuing. While I've been hurt by Christians, I've also been immensely blessed by Christians. Brothers and sisters in Christ have been there for me in my pain. Single mothers who made meals when my wife endured a serious illness. Small group leaders who gave me money when I was suddenly unemployed and scared. A pastor who called and preached the word of God to me when I was in despair. I've been blessed by wise matriarchs with arthritic knees who called on spiritual fire from heaven on my behalf when I was weak. I've been healed by friends who left everything and came to my side when I needed hope. Thank you for listening to the sample chapter of Agents of Grace. As a reminder, you can get this book anywhere books are sold. You can go to my website, danieldarling.com for more information. But for now, let's rejoin our conversation on the Way Home Podcast. I just love the way you frame that. And and you mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. And I think of you know his practice of peaceful nonviolence and the way that he used words like love and you know, concepts like love and human dignity to communicate against the injustice. Uh, I, I remember reading, I've read, written several things on the civil rights movement. I, John Meacham's book on John Lewis was really good, where they talked about, you know, sacrificing their bodies in order to demonstrate love and communicate. And, and really, if you think about it, one of the reasons the civil rights movement was so successful was because of that premise. That they were saying, look what you're doing to people. Look how human these people are that you're treating as right. human. And it created the kind of uh, social movement and space to to actually get something done. And one of the th- one of the arguments I make in favor of civility, genuine civility, is civility gives us the forum and the space to then make the arguments for right. change that we want to see. So. In a zero-sum world where it's winner-take-all and there's no recognition of the humanity of the opposition, mm-hmm. you actually don't win, mm-hmm. right? Nobody, you don't actually achieve your what you want to see. So I love, I love that you say it that way. I want to read a little bit. The, the, this is a favorite part of one of my favorite parts of the book. It's on civil society, and you say this: civility is the person-to-person phenomenon. That helps each of us overcome our selfish natures so that our social natures might flourish. Mm -hmm. Civility helps promote integrity, being good as opposed to merely seeming good, which, by the way, is a key thing today. Mm -hmm. You know, genuine activism on behalf of the vulnerable instead of like looking like you're doing something. This is which sustains our friendship, our social fabric, political institutions, and civil society at micro and macro levels in our neighborhoods. Town meetings in the halls of Congress, civility builds a personal virtue that is essential to fostering trust between citizens. Civility also facilitates the process of building and deploying social capital to meet needs and solve problems and enables the relationships, intimate and general alike, that make our lives meaningful. So important. And one of the things that that actually gives me hope, I think the country obviously is deeply polarized on a national level, online, in our politics. But I still think the country works pretty well locally, right? Mm. Like in our local communities, people are working together. People are working with people that they disagree with mm-hmm. to to have the kind of communities we have. Because you sort of have to, right? Like, you know, whatever you feel about your neighbor, your actual immediate next door neighbor, he may have a totally different ideology than you. You're all sort of 
in this tacit agreement to live together in the same community and you want the community f- to flourish. So, so talk about that sort of local institutions and, and that sort of local application of civility that, that you write about so well in there. Thank you. So chapter five that you noted on civil civility and civil society is where we get to the meat of, you know, my theory of social change, which is it's so you can't change others, but you can change yourself. And that if enough of us change ourselves, we might be able to change the world and reclaim the soul of civility. It's just so easy and so tempting to look outward and want to change our public leaders and want to and want there to be someone else in the White House and and and, and blame you know media, social media, um, the other right. There's just no end of of grievances that we want to blame other entities and things for, and that is not a wise use of our emotional energy or time because we can't change those things. They, they, they are what they are, but we can change. We can change ourselves. And the story I tell about this theory uh, of social change um, is, is, is about the porching revolution happening at the local level across the country. And so when I left Washington after my very dispirited experience in politics, I fled, I was willing to go anywhere. My husband has roots in the American Midwest. He's from Indianapolis, uh, from Indiana. And so I came home from work one day and said, we're leaving DC, let's go. <laughs> and he said, great, no take backs, we're moving. And so like a few months later, we found herself, ourselves in the Midwest and, and we found um, a wonderful church here that had a real emphasis on on beauty that I'd love to return to at the Mm. in our conversation. But at our church, one of our first times visiting here in Indianapolis, this this church, a woman named Joanna came up to me, Joanna Taft, and she said, Hi, my name's Joanna. Would you like to porch with us? And this was the first time I had heard the word porching used as a verb before. And I said, sure, why not? We didn't know that many people in town yet. So we went to Joanna's house and it was this turn of the century, beautiful, you know, historic home with this grand veranda, this great big front porch that wrapped all the way around the front of the house. And for Joanna, the porching was the communal living room. It was, it was her, you know, her, this is where she was being the change that she wanted to see in the world. She curated people across difference, race, politics, geography, even, even people just from different parts of town and invited them around her porch, on her porch, around, you know, a charcuterie board and some drinks to just have conversation. There was no structured con- structured dialogue, no topic. It's just like a chance to share space with people across difference and to give the opportunity for those seeds of friendship and affection and trust to form because you really do, do need those, that, that kind of baseline of trust and, and mutual affection to have those uh, important and difficult conversations about incredibly volatile and sensitive topics that, that are important that we need to talk about today. But often there's just, there's such a gracelessness to our public discourse today. And there's certainly not enough mutual respect and admiration to be able to talk about, you know, things like gender or so other social issues or race in our, in our world. There's just, um, and so her, her porch was this, this is, this is where she was staging a social and cultural revolution against the atomized and divided status quo that we find ourselves in. Mm. And what I love mm. about this is that, you know, Joanna is so wonderful, but she, unconsciously she's carrying on this incredibly rich and vibrant tradition of porching that goes right back to the Roman Empire. Marcus Aurelius, when he was emperor of Rome, he endowed four chairs of philosophy. For the Pl- Platonists, he endowed the academy. 
For the Aristotelians, he endowed the Lyceum. For the Epicureans, he endowed the Garden. And for the Stoics, he endowed the Stoa, which is the front porch. This is the porch. And what I love about that is that Joanne, that the Stoics were kind of this early philosophical group that had uh, the same theory of social change that focus on what you can't control. You can't change others, but you can change yourself and you can live a better life and change the world by changing yourself. And so it's really beautiful to see this sort of symmetry of, of in history of, of this, this porching revolution that occurred during a really atomized, divided existential crisis during the Roman Empire also happening now. In our, in, in our own very divided time. And there are people, this is the hopeful news, that there are people like Joanna staging this sort of revolution, this social and cultural revolution across the country with and without front porches, that, that the porching disposition is the disposition of, of civility and hospitality and of seeing the other and seeing others as beings that are worthy of respect and, and, and using the resources at our disposal. Like we don't even have to have a front porch. It can just be, you know, having an open house or our front lawn or our stoop. You know, you don't have to have this grand veranda to have, to open your home and your heart to people. You don't even have to have, you know, a home, you know, you can meet someone at a coffee shop. It's just a way of engaging others with an openness and a curiosity and leading with seeing their personhood first. That is the most salient thing about them and not these other marks of identity that are important to who we are. But ultimately, we have more in common as, as, as members of the human community made in God's image than, than not. And so what does it mean to recover that high view of humanity? I know, I know, Dan, you've talked so richly about this in your book and your work on the Dignity Revolution. So I know I'm, mm. I preach the choir to you and, uh, and I'm sure to your audience. But And I'll just say one more thing. There's a beautiful essay called Front, Front Porch to Patio. And it's by a guy named Richard H. Thomas in a now defunct publication called The Palimpsest. And he talks about how 100 years ago, homes were made like Joanna's. Like Joanna's home mm. is 100 years old. It was made, they were made with these great big front porches. And how over the last 100 years, slowly the front porch moved from the back of the house to the side and then finally to, to the, sorry, from the front of the house to the side and then finally mm. to the back into the modern day patio that's French fenced in and covered and far more curated. Like Thomas said that, uh, you know, the porch is like the communal living room. You're, you're out there, you're seeing friends, neighbors, strangers alike. And it's just presence. Like you're, you're there. It's a social statement about your rootedness in the community and your commitment to the community. Not, and then the, the patio by contrast is a social statement as well. It's, it's more intimate and curated and you're not you know, seeing strangers and, and your neighbors alike as just family and friends or even, you know, going and moving into your home with air conditioning. And so Thomas talks about how this architectural shift marks a social shift as well from communitarianism 100 years ago to more of an ethos of individualism that defines our era very much now. And so it's beautiful that there are people reclaiming both the physical space of the porch, but also the metaphorical, what, what it represents metaphorically, which is just rootedness in the community presence and openness and a commitment to making the stranger the friend. That's really good. I mean, I, I think of a wonder that that porching idea is really, that porching thing is concept is really, really interesting. You know, I think of, I wonder if a lot of those conversations have been moved to more mediated spaces where they're less face-to-face -face and more mediated through technology um, and how people, how we locally can sort of take them back 
uh, one one thing at a time. You, you know, someone said something uh, recently. I forget who it was that one way that Christianity can be countercultural in a in a digital age is is to be embodied, right? And I think of even like church life. You know, the analog rhythms of church life. We we come to church and you know we're we're there in in, in person. We take the the bread and the cup. And it's a physical thing that we do. Mm-hmm. We physically sing and we use our whole bodies to worship and all of that. You know, I wonder in an increasingly digital and atomized age, if, if that will be a sort of um, respite for people who are weary of, of sort of the living online throughout the week. So I think that's really interesting. And it is interesting to see folks in local communities practicing civility talking with their neighbors, working things out with people they disagree with. And probably these are folks who don't see themselves as some big hero trying to save the country, but it's just people in their own places just doing what they feel called to do and in a simple way. I think of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, word I was just reading this morning where he talked about how like, you know, one word of truth can dispel violence and one like one work of art, one creation of art can, can push back against the darkness. I, I thought that was really good. But anyways, this is really good. Um, I want to encourage folks to get this book, the soul of civility, timeless principles to heal society and ourselves has some really great endorsements like Francis Fukuyama and uh, several others that have endorsed, endorsed it. It's a really rich read. You know, so it's not a, a simplistic idea of just everybody be nice to each other and everybody be kind, which we should be kind, but it's a real like sort of tour de force through what it looks like to live in commu- in a country, in a community with people who are different than us, uh, how to, you know, advocate for the things that we really believe in about, you know, principles about society and how things should be ordered, our convictions but do it in a pluralistic society. So really want to commend it. Uh, and, and Lexi, a lot of work went into this and, and hope folks get this book. What would you say to folks if you have any parting thoughts about, you know, f- people are kind of like discouraged about the state of the country or like, yeah, is this democracy going to hang together? Can we do this? You know, people are kind of a little burned out from politics or maybe they think, you know, just they don't like where things are going. What, encouragement would you give folks? Thank you for that question, Dan. Thanks again for your kind words um, about my book. I wanted to share that anyone who does buy it, I have $700 worth of free gifts that I'd love to give you as a thank you for for buying the book that you can get at alexandraohudson.com forward slash book dash pre order. And I can't wait to hear from many of you as you you take the time to read it. But yeah, to, to that, to your question about people being weary and just utterly fatigued. I think that's true, absolutely true in Christian communities and in secular communities. My final chapter in the book is on misplaced meaning and forgiveness. And there's this lovely um, essay by a 19th century Scottish theologian named Chalmers, Thomas Chalmers. Mm. And this essay is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in this essay, he says, you know, it's not enough to just say, okay, sin is killing me and sin is weighing me down. Like this bad habit, this addiction, whatever it is that is is 
callousing my soul and detracting and and separating me from God that I can't just say sin. That's bad. Like you have to have a profound vision and love of something good and beautiful to in any permanent way, displace our affection for the sin and for the world and whatever it is that is weighing us down. And, And so he talks about like, he says, nature abhors a vacuum. You can't just take away the bad. You have to replace the good with something better. And so I argue that we have misplaced our meaning in politics as a society that as these traditional touchstones of meaning have waned from friendship to community and religion that these have are are you know documented on on the rescindance in recent decades and we're increasingly find our, finding our identity and our meaning in public life and in public issues which decreases our ability to have rational calm dialogue across difference that it's not just okay dan you think one thing i think another thing it's like no you differ from me on this issue and I'm perceiving that my body and my mind are perceiving that as an existential threat to who I am because my identity is so intermingled with this issue. And that's bad for public discourse. That's bad for our souls. So we've misplaced our meaning in politics. And it's not enough to just say, okay, let's make politics matter less. Okay? Like we can say it all day long until we're blue in the face. We have to make other more beautiful, better things matter more. So as Christians, you know, that's just like basking ourselves in the love of Jesus Christ, every single day refreshing our souls at the wellspring of his like infinite love, claiming our status as members of, you know, the beloved, as saved and redeemed in who he is. And that um, that will fill us up, that fills us up and, and, and allows us to, you know, share that, share that with others. And in the book, I talk about other things that, that might be more applicable to secular, but also Christian communities as well, that help can help us refresh our souls and, and fill us up and give us the equanimity we need to do this hard stuff of life together, uh, especially across difference and in these divided times. I talk about the need for friendship, recovering friendship and that basic affection that we have for one another. I talk about intellectual curiosity, loving learning for its own sake, and how curiosity breeds curiosity. It feeds on itself. And that when we are curious about one thing, we want to learn about more things. And that like having that curiosity about others, especially about why they believe what they believe. As, as opposed to, to just, you know, indicting them off offhand, saying you believe this one thing, you're clearly a bad person. We're too quick to use one aspect of who someone is as a shorthand for, for, for everything about them. But instead staying curious and saying, you know, why are you here? What experiences led you to have this view? But that is, you know, not just fulfilling to, to have that curiosity and that wonderment about the world around you, but it's also a key to healing our divide, just reclaiming a curiosity and moving past this era of moral certainty that we find ourselves in where we, we think we have all the answers. Recovering beauty and the sublime, these, these experiences in nature or before works of art that instill a sense of smallness and awe with God's creation. For me at night, it was, uh, I would I would sit up at night and think about space. And just the vastness of space was enough to terrify me and petrify me. I just remember reflecting and, and kind of seeing, looking up at the stars at night and just feeling the sense of smallness. And that's encountering the sublime, the greatness and, and majesty of our creator. Blaise Pascal, I'm paraphrasing um, him, but he has this great insight that man is a finite between two infinites 
like life is exponentially bigger and smaller than we than our little brains can ever comprehend. And like just reflecting on, you know, ideas, philosophy, beauty, uh, and concepts like that, it, it, it helps us reframe. And, and it gets our eyes off of our sm- ourselves and our, the smallness of our lives and our problems and our little quibbles. And it fills us up. It displaces our ego. The Irish philosopher Iris Murdoch calls it the fat, relentless ego because it is relentless. <laughs> it you know it, it's never permanently conquered our self love that we always have to keep be vigilant about um, keeping it at bay, and that these little habits of renewal, curiosity, friendship, um, you know, religious ritual, beauty that that uh, ha- having these little moments of transcendence as part of our lives can be really life changing and can displace our negative affections, our harmful affections towards politics and and finding our identity in temporal things that will never truly fulfill us and finding it in more eternal things that, that actually can, because politics has invaded every area of our lives. Every aspect of our lives has a political valence, like where you shop, what newspaper you read, where you go to church, Mm -hmm. where you live. And it's too much. And it's not enough just to say we're overdoing politics. We're overdoing democracy and we're undermining not just democracy, but also again, this joint project of living well together. That is God's best for us. We become fully ourselves Mm. in relationship. So we have to, um, it's not enough just to say politics matter less. We have to do things and and, and practices and fill our lives with with other things that can fill us up and give us that grace to, and the motivation to to do life better together. So be encouraged and and be shameless in in your habits of renewal, that it's not selfish to engage in these forms of of self-care because, um, again, Filling ourselves up allows us to engage better with others and, and better be the change that we that we want to see in the world for that to borrow that cliche, but it's true. Mm, that's really good. Really good stuff. I I, I want to thank you for, for coming on here and, and this great conversation with me. I want to encourage folks again to get this book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. And uh, we'll have links to that in our show notes and get it wherever books are sold. Lexi, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dan, for having me. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at Dan Darling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. Podcast.